Here we go, July the 27th, 2014, lecture discussion number 162 on the book of Romans. And uh, I'm going to get to Joshua 2, Joshua 6, the mystery of the accursed thing today towards the end, uh, uh, and the questions from last Sunday, which of course is one of those, uh, lecture 161 for those of you on the internet that uh, are trying to keep track. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going to, uh, I got a couple of things I need to insert. And one is an internet question, which I'll read here uh, during uh, at about page five. The other is merely me thinking of what's going on in the world, and uh, particularly the possibilities with respect to Ezekiel 38, the Russian-led uh, confederacy that comes against Israel. And, and I hope you've been watching this. It's amazing uh, what we're seeing, uh, especially for all the students of the Bible prophecies. Uh, paying some attention at least what's gone on the last month with Russia, with uh, uh, with Iran, with this ISIS army seizing Iraq. Now what we've got added to the mix is the Turkish prime minister came out the other day and um, equated Israel's defending its civilian pop- populations against the Hamas missile attack to the Nazis' slaughter of the Jews during World War II. And that, that's irony at its uh, fullest uh, hyperbola certainly, but just pay, it's noteworthy. This is Turkey now. Turkey is beginning to participate openly against Israel. They would send ships uh, to break the blockade. As you know, these, uh, the Hamas has been taking all the aid that it has been given. They negotiated, and our country, our State Department, our presidential administration helped um, uh, Hamas uh, receive receive uh, concrete and building supplies. They did not rebuild Gaza with that. They didn't care. They don't care about Gaza. They care about killing Jews. And so they took all of that concrete because Israel had a blockade and they were intercepting any building materials and it was negotiated that they should allow building materials. But Israel knew those materials would be used to fortify missile systems and what they did instead, I think, possibly catching Israel off guard, is create this network of tunnel systems whereby they can now infiltrate and bring an infantry army into uh, the cities that are Israel. Uh, Israel. So um, it's a it's a mess to say the least. But Turkey is now fully aligned with Iran, and if you're a, uh, aligned with Iran, you're aligned with Russia. If you're aligned with Iran and Russia, you're aligned, therefore, with Syria. And if you're aligned with Syria, you have now put Hamas and Hezbollah together. And that is what has happened uh, recently, more so. It's come to the forefront. It's always been in the background, but now it's coming out of the uh, shadows, if you will. Turkey and Iran and Russia will conspire against the ancient uh, nation of Assyria at some point. That's today's Kurdistan. And uh, the Assyrians hate the Turks, and the Turks hate the Assyrians. Uh, you perhaps saw that ISIS army go and destroy the tomb of Jonah. Uh, that is not by accident. There's a, a great deal of respect for Jonah's ministry in Nineveh in that part of the country, but the uh, ISIS army, which is a Al-Qaeda derivative, for lack of a better term, they destroyed all of that. They're killing Christians now. You must renounce your Christianity or you will be killed. And the Christians are fleeing that whole area. 
If Iran, which is Persia in Ezekiel 38, seizes, if they beat back this Al-Qaeda army, this ISIS army, and they seize Iraq, which is Babylon in Scripture, then the Assyrians are now compressed between the Turkish military and the Iranian military. That's two formidable, formidable sorry, militaries, uh, and that, that is also part of prophecy. It's noteworthy as well that uh, the anti-Semitic vitriol is being exposed once more in Europe. If you talk to my father who uh, died in, let me, get, let me think it through, 2001, um, he was, uh, of course, all, everyone his age was part of the World War II generation. If you had told him that Europe was now returning to the anti-Jewish uh, hatred that they had during the time of Hitler, he would have told you, no, that's not going to happen. That is precisely what's happening. And once more, the Jews are the hunted prey in Europe. You see all these protests beginning. So we're witnessing the hind of the morning. Once again, we have the hind of the morning, Psalm 22, playing out for us. Why did Christ say uh, Psalm 22.1 from the cross, because he knew, obviously, as the God of the Jews, as the omniscient God of creation, he knew who the hind of the morning is and who the hind of the morning would be and what would happen to the hind of the morning. And we're watching Europe now do exactly what Ezekiel 38 said it would do, and that would be become an anti-Israel confederacy along with or at least the lower half of Europe and aligning itself with Russia and attacking Israel at some point. If we see the attack of Ezekiel 38, then it is so close. That would change your lives, as I've said many times. You're no longer one who has not seen, but you are one who has seen. It's not forbidden to hate the Jews openly now in Europe. It will, it will be also in this country. This country will also hate the Jews. And it is not forbidden to call for the annihilation of all Jews, especially the nation of Israel. That, that darkness, that pre-World War II darkness, that's back. Just exactly as Ezekiel 38 said it must be. So I've been asking myself, I know something will tip it. Something that's teetering now, something's going to push it over at what's called the hook in the jaw of Russia, Ezekiel 38.4. Something is going to pull Russia uh, into a war uh, with Israel, an infantry war. What will do it? And over the years, I've, I've thought, you know, I just ruminated and put out kind of ideas that I would get and uh, wanted to know what people thought of them. I, I considered extraordinary medical advances the defeat of death because that's a theme in the Bible. It's a theme in Joshua when we get to Joshua 6 and 7 here. Again, it's always there. It's at Sodom. It's at Babylon. I'm sorry, it's at the Tower of Babel. It's all throughout the Bible. It's at Judges 19, this attempt to defeat death. So I thought, okay, maybe Israel has an extraordinary medical capability that gets Russia to come towards it. Or maybe they come up with a military technology that totally eliminates the militaristic power of these other countries. And then I thought maybe, perhaps because looking at the 
the, the fact that it is most likely an um, infantry war, how would we return to an infantry-type system, an infantry-driven system with all the technology that we have? I considered um, being that this is my field, an electromagnetic pulse from our, uh, that destroys our current electrical system and that renders everything inoperable. That's, of course, as you know, I've said it quite a few times, the Carrington effect of 1859. What if a solar eruption, I would consider, hit uh, today's technologies, 2014 technologies? And that's not unprecedented. If you've been reading the news, what did you read? Yeah, a few months ago, we had a massive solar event, and it hit the, if it had hit the Earth, it would have, would have compromised all unprotected electrical equipment and wiped it out at, at, at worst, but certainly it rendered it unfunctional at best. Years unfunctional. And you know what that would mean. I hope you know what that would mean. That would mean that teenage girls would have no phones and no my face and no book face and no reason to continue living. And I, I find that amusing, actually. I do. Uh, seriously, though, uh, food production would stop. We'd have no food production. Uh, you'd have no power generation. If you had no power generation, you'd have no air conditioning in just think about what that would mean. New Mexico, Arizona, parts of California. Those are uninhabitable places. If we lose power generation, that is a hopeless problem. You know how much food New York City has. They, they don't even have a day's food. You, you couldn't, all transportation would cease. Um, everything. Water, water distribution, sewage removal. I happened to be here in the 64 earthquake. I know what it's like to lose power generation. I was a young man, but I know what it's like. We at the, uh, back in my days with the Alaska Railroad, we had the capability of bringing those um, uh, 3,000 class locomotives and pouring them into the power grid in the event there was massive power failure. We could run 30,000, 40,000 um, homes with those generators that are in those locomotives. And that was part of our civil defense strategy, and that was something that I was responsible for as the electrical superintendent back in those days to make sure all of that system would work. But a solar pulse or even a, uh, an EMP weapon, if the Koreans, for example, hit us with a pulse weapon or, or anybody hit us with a pulse weapon, uh, none of those things would operate. So... What I, that scenario, which is quite plausible, as I said, just two months ago, two massive solar flares missed this earth. And if they had hit it, uh, all militaries are back to basic strategies, which is infantry and supply lines. You have no capability to feed your troops and move your troops. You're Hannibal on elephants again. You're back to that kind of, your 19th century, bang, civil war. You're moving off uh, armies very, very slowly. And, and Israel, what's Israel's military? It is non-infantry. Their infantry is minimal. Their armor, their air force, and they're amazing. Their Iron Dome, as I said last week, is ridiculous in its capabilities. They're knocking bullets out of the air with bullets. And if they're shrunk, if their military is shrunk to an infantry, they're overwhelmed and they're relatively uh, defenseless. 
And so I said, okay, that's, that's always on the table. But why would Russia in particular attack? And I began to look at it from a different perspective recently. And that is not the vulnerability of Israel, but the vulnerability of Russia. Russia is particularly vulnerable. They have essentially a singular economy. What do I mean by that? I heard a joke a few weeks ago. um, Go to your house and look for something that says made in Russia. They don't have anything. They have vodka. and What else did they have? Natural gas and oil production. That's what they have. And it, what's that? I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, thank you for the joke. They have RussianBrides.com. Uh, it came from Ken in the back row. Uh, no one asked why it is that Ken knows that. Uh, especially, don't ask Cindy why Ken knows it. Cindy has no idea why he knows that. <laughs> anyway, it's now all over the world, by the way. China China now knows that Ken knows that. Um, <laughs> but the Russia currently controls Europe and, their, and, and with their natural gas production and their oil reserves. And, but without oil and without gas, Russia is bankrupt. They are in big trouble. Who else is in trouble? Why, that whole confederacy is in trouble. Iraq, Iran. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar. But Russia, the only, only technologies that they export are military technologies. And, uh, the, that's an exportable commodity, commodity for them as is oil and gas. So I'm suggesting, what if Israel, the, the, these brilliant scientific minds that are there, and I'm reading one, um, at length now, as you know, um, a physicist, and it's very impressive thinking, both philosophically and um, from a physics perspective. But what if Israel develops a viable energy source? Now, let me focus on the word viable. For example, let's say Israel, what do they have that they could make fuel from? What are they going to look around? They have a country that is so small. What do they have? Where would they look for fuel sources. What if they could develop a viable energy source from salt? Do they have salt? They do, or sulfur. They have The Dead Sea is a giant hole filled with salt and sulfur, amongst other heavy concentrations of minerals. And I just, you know, you got to ask me, Leah, what, uh, what might have made such a deep hole? What could have happened Blew a hole that deep and filled it full of salt and sulfur, Genesis 19.23. Anyway, anything that threatens the economic engine of Russia or OPEC, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, that might motivate them to collaborate and attack and steal or end the capability to render their oil reserves or the gas reserves essentially obsolete. So if... Does Israel know about the mineral resources in the Dead Sea? Absolutely. They've known it for since they've been there now, pushing 80 years. And they knew that something special is in that Dead Sea. Now, are they, have they got the technologies yet? And if they do, uh, do have them, uh, what will that mean? 
It's one of my thoughts. Whoever replaces oil production with an actual effective alternative as opposed to bird blenders and ethanol, and ethanol, we're burning our food supply. Are we the dumbest people that has ever lived? We are so dumb. Look, corn, I can feed cattle and all, all kinds of livestock. I'll, I know what I'll do. I'll burn it. And I'll burn it in an engine and destroy the engine. And it costs me more BTUs to make the ethanol than it does to when I got it to produce. It's just absolute crazy town stuff. And the old joke, you're not, who's going to get on an airplane um, powered by a solar panel? It's just not something anyone with a brain will do. And these so-called smart cars in Alaska, they're going around tipping them over all over the country now. It's kind of a joke. They just pick them up and roll them over. You drive one of those in Alaska, you have less chance of surviving a head-on collision than a motorcyclist. You're an organ donor. And, and the coal cars, why hasn't it occurred to people that to charge the batteries, you have to plug it into a coal-fired generation plant in the United States? I, I just Clearly, the discussion is not intellectually based. But oh, Sorry about that. I digress. Any nation that accomplishes a free fuel that is superior to oil will not be praised, they will face wrath from the nations that own their own oil production systems. And those, of course, are your communist nations, your socialist nations, and your dictatorships. They will hate the country that puts them out of business. And I'm not going to be surprised if in the next couple of years the Israelis are the nation that solves the fuel issue. Why wouldn't they? They have some of the most brilliant physicists and chemists in the world. Why wouldn't they do it? And if they did it, they would destroy the Arab industries and send them back to where they were 300 years ago. The motivation to do so would be pretty profound. And if they do it, they will not be greeted with flowers and lilies and puppy dogs and donuts, they're going to be fired upon and they'll receive hatred. And if you are foolish enough to think that the United States will stand with Israel, ha, read a poll. The anti-Israel Jewish hatred in this country is rising at, uh, exponentially. It is skyrocketing. And it is now actually pretty much acceptable to hate the Jews. No one reads Genesis 12.3 anymore. That becomes obvious. This is the most anti-Israel this country has been in my lifetime, and I'm old. Very soon, only the evangelical fundamentalists, the Christians, the literalists, the creationists are going to support Israel. I read uh, today that uh, one of the large liberal uh, uh, church denominations have decided that as a protest they're going to divest themselves from Israel's economy. It's going to happen fast, shockingly fast, and the Bible says when it happens, that is the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles, which started in 586 B.C. 
when Nebuchadnezzar invaded. We are still in the age of the Gentiles. And when that ends, things begin to change. So, it might be very cool to be us here really fast. We'll be able to see things that no one has ever dreamt they would see. And when that happens, we're going to have a church meeting because everything will be different. When that confederacy moves towards Israel, we should be able to see it. Let's just imagine, hypothetically, that I'm right. Okay, that wasn't as hard as you thought, really. But let's just imagine that you get up tomorrow morning and you read Israel is making fuel from some Dead Sea source. Holy mackerel, honey child. It's, it's, it's going to happen then in our lifetimes. And everything changes and we have a meeting. I'll start feeling a lot better for, with my, people ask me all the time, am I concerned if the stock market, which is just another aside, economic collapse is also an end times issue, an end of the age of the Gentiles issue. I think the stock market, when you are, 500 times revenue for stock. I mean, that's really crazy stuff. And I am totally protected from a stock market collapse. It will not affect me at all. I have the strategy that has overcome that. It's called poverty. And so they can't make me more poor very easily. They're going to have to fight to do that. So anyway. I know I repeat this quite often, but I'm stunned. I, I, I go read, uh, as you know, I read quite a bit, and um, I can't help myself. And I, we also have quite a few first-time listeners, and it's happening. It's it's accelerating. It's impossible to ignore it. Just start paying attention. Okay, next thing I want to do while I'm kind of running around here, I want to read this letter from Glenn in Texas. Glenn says this, Pastor Chronister, our little group, is trudging through the Gospel of John. We have found ourselves at the end of chapter 2, specifically verses 24 and 25. These seem odd. Aha! Which I know is a good thing. I went back to the Greek and noticed that in verse 24 and verse 25, there is the definite article, the, preceding the word man. When read in this light, I can't help but think this is a Judas Antichrist reference. If I have lost my way in the weeds, please let me know. If not, could you shed some light on why or how it fits here between the cleansing of the temple and Nicodemus? So, I was delighted to get a letter from Glenn and his little group, which probably outnumbers us about four to one. We understand how that all works. We don't want them to know that, though. So keep quiet. As usual, Glenn from Texas and his little group has selected out two verses in the Gospel of John that are almost universally misinterpreted, butchered. They found them like a laser. They dove right on them. They've done this before, by the way. It's becoming a pattern for Glenn's little group, I've noticed. Um, and, um, anyway, I know that this is two verses that are, I don't know how to explain it other than to say 
Did I say butchered already? I'm out of adjectives. I know this is these two verses in John 2 cause all kinds of problems for people, and I know who uses them as a uh, as a weapon. And, and just for fun, I tried to find uh, a commentator that uh, even came close to understanding it in my library, and I found none. And I have a pretty substantive, substantive library, substantial. But none of the authors that I own, which if I counted all of them, that gave, all my John commentaries that probably have 25, none of them knew the meaning of John 2, 24 through 25. And again, I wasn't surprised. It's a sad state of affairs. And since this is a pattern for Glenn's little group to find these particular verses and send me letters, it's happened quite a few times now, four or five, I believe, I'm concluding that Glenn's little group is a little bit contrary. And so I imagine they probably already asked their pastors, uh, I don't know if they're all one group or if they have a church, but I'm assuming they do, and if they asked their church pastor this question, I doubt it went very well. Because, you see, most seminaries teach their students, the ones who become pastors, they teach them that John 2, 24 to 25, are verses that support the position uh, that states that there are believers. Listen, now I say it now. I'm going to try to do it justice. There are believers who don't really truly believe. You might think that's contradictory. And they will teach you that God knows who these believers who really truly don't believe are, and he rejects them because he knows that they aren't really truly believers. Obvious question is, is why does his Bible then identify them as believers? Never mind, that, I don't want to throw that out there because that would be confusing. So essentially, you're going to run into people and some of the largest churches in the United States. Uh, I've read all the books. As you might know, it's important to read what they think because uh, just in case they have a point, I want to know it. They don't hear. But there are those who say definitively that there are two groups, categories, And there are some who don't know they're not saved. They think they're saved. They go through their life, their whole life, thinking they're saved. They go to church. They tithe. They believe. They sing. They testify. They try to live pure lives. They do everything that you can do. But at the end of the day, when it's standing before the throne, they find out that they weren't really believers. They teach that. And they use John 24, or 2, 24, 25 as their, one of their trumpets. And usually this kind of nonsense is accompanied by the teacher who teaches this, declaring himself to be the arbiter of who is really, 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 truly, truly a believer and who should tithe more. We call it in the business, scaring the sheep into giving more money. I look out here today and I see a bunch of people who aren't truly, really saved. Let me count. Eight, you need to tithe more. That's all, I just shorten the sermon. You'll get an hour of that. And they'll scare you into bawing. That's not a word or a verb. But you will baw all the way up to the bucket and throw in as much money as you can 
to convince the arbiter of salvation who is scaring you that you are really truly saved. It's pathetic. It's a tactic. It certainly isn't biblical. But again, John 2, 24 through 25 is routinely utilized by these kind of people to divide Christians into those two companies. Those who are saved believers, who they have designated. As you know, I've always wanted to give people, I want to say saved believers and unsaved believers and give the best parking spaces to the saved believers. As if there is such a thing as an unsaved believer. I mean, it's just, again, I'll get angry here. No, I won't. I'll just start ranting. Those who are saved believers and those who are unsaved believers. And yes, I say it that way on purpose. It annoys the people who hold this view and that hold up John 2, 24 through 25 as evidence of their view. <coughs> and as usual, John, as Glenn knows, and as his little group knows, John 2, 24 through 25 does no such thing. And Glenn is uh, proceeding correctly. Let me read you the part that is really good. He is connecting the first Passover. He says, uh, if you could uh, please tell me how it fits between the cleansing of the temple and Nicodemus. So Glenn is connecting the first of the four Johnine Passovers. There's four Passovers in, in John, the Gospel of John. And this is the first Passover, the cleansing of the temple. And he's connecting that, those Passovers, or that Passover, to the answer that God gives Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. And by the way, I was talking to Marie earlier, the best way to solve John 2, 24 through 25 is to know it has a New Testament complement. Go find the New Testament complement. You know it's in the first Passover. You know it's in the cleansing of the temple by God. So you can find the cleansing of the temple complement in the Old Testament. Connect the two of them together. You'll solve John 24 through 25. John 2, 24 through 25. But that's just as an aside. Right now, Glenn really hit on it very well. It doesn't seem to be connected to what God says to Nicodemus. This cleansing of the temple and what God says to Nicodemus doesn't seem to be connected. Do I, I should read this verse, huh? I don't know whether or not I wrote down, read this verse. Maybe I did. I now have to find if I had a reason. I don't think I wrote down to read it. So let's read it, and then that'll help. I'm looking at you, and you're going, I have no idea what this verse is about. Well, it's because I haven't read it for you. Let's do that. Here's Glenn's concern. Now, when he, Christ, was in Jerusalem, I'm at verse 23 at chapter 2. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not believe himself to them. Now, your Bible might say commit, but the word is believe, believe. It's actually a play, if you will, uh, on the word believe. But Jesus did not believe himself to them because he knew all and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was the man. So, that's the verse. And they say, well, see, Jesus doesn't believe in the people who believe. So, therefore, they're not really saved. It's not saying that. 
Glenn's right. How is it that it connects to Nicodemus? Because what comes next is Nicodemus. So I have the cleansing of the temple, and then I have Nicodemus. But actually, I have more than that. I'll get to it in a second. There are four Passovers in John. Some dispute that. They don't like four Passovers, but I think it's pretty clear that there are four. This is the first of the Passovers in John. There's a reason he has a Passover pattern in the book of, in the Gospel of John. John knew it when he was writing the Gospel of John, and he has a Passover pattern in the book of Revelation, and he knew it when he was writing the book of Revelation. John loves the Passover. That's what the 153 fish is about. Everybody with me? Okay, say yes, so you'll impress Buck. It's not true, Buck. They're not. I've lost everybody. It happens every time. Don't feel bad. We have a visitor for those of you on the internet. We try to get rid of them. But Buck is hanging on pretty good so far. Four Passovers in John. The cleansing of the temple, which is the selling of the salvation. Christ comes and stops them from selling sacrifices because you can't sell Salvation. It's free. It's the only free thing in the world. There's no such thing as buy one, get one free. That's a, a lie. Quit falling for it. Buy a brand new Ford truck, get a free set of tires on it. Clearly, that get a free transmission. Clearly, it's included. The only thing free is the grace of God. And, and God is stopping that from being corrupted. That's why he's cleansing out the temple. He's getting rid of this sacrifice-selling business, and the request from the sign, for a sign from the Pharisee. So that's what's happening in the first Passover. Christ says that he'll resurrect himself. So I got those three things. Stopping the selling of salvation sacrifices, the request for a sign that the Pharisee is giving, the statement that Christ would resurrect himself, and then the conclusion of all of that is that verse I just read, but Jesus did not believe himself to them because he knew all. That's the conclusion to what I just rattled off. And that, that section, that first Passover, is now followed by Nicodemus. So all you really also have to do is go find out what preceded it. And what did precede it? That is where Christ does his first exposition, if you will. He exposes that he is God at the wedding. So, first comes Christ exposing that he is God, then comes Christ as God exposed, getting rid of the selling of salvation and, and denying the request for the sign by giving them only the, his resurrection of himself, and then he concludes that with he uh, did not believe himself to them because he knew all. So, I have the wedding, I have that. And then I have the answer to Nicodemus. So obviously the meaning of John 2, 24 through 25 leads us to Nicodemus, as Glenn has deduced. Here's where we yell out, yay, Glenn. I don't have time to go very far into this today, except to say that when you look at the water into, water, into wine, that is what? What is, what is the water into wine called in the Bible? It's called something very important to know. It's called the beginning of signs. John 2.11. And then the Pharisees, what did they want him to do after he cleans out the temple? They want him to give them a sign, a messianic sign. So far I have sign, sign. By the way, that messianic sign thing that they wanted is a trap. 
That's John 2.18. And what sign does Christ give them? He says, I'm going to resurrect myself. What is that? That is the sign of Jonah. Does it again, by the way, in Matthew. All he gives them is the sign of Jonah. And then many believe in the name of Christ when they saw the signs that he did. What did he do? What were the signs that he did? He heals everybody. He puts new arms, new legs, new eyes, new ears, new noses. He gets rid of leprosy, raises them from the dead. He does things that only the designer of the human body could do. He proves that he is the one that made the human being and all the animals and everything. He proves that to them. He's the creator. That's the sign. And many believed that he is God when they saw those signs, but not the Pharisees. They didn't believe. Certainly didn't submit. So that's what's happened. So so far I've got sign, the beginning of sign. I have the messianic sign that he rejects, the sign of Jonah, and then the signs that the people saw. And then Nicodemus says to Christ, no one, I know you're God, he says. I'm paraphrasing John 3, 2. I know you're God because no one can do these signs that you do. You're God. And Christ answers him with, Does he pat him on the back and say, good for you, figured it out, Nick? No. He gives him the, he tells him, born of water and the spirit. And then he goes on to solve the mystery of Agar, Agar, Proverbs 32.4. The mystery of Agar is that no one knew the name of the second person. Now, let me put that on the board for Glenn. He's not there. Not, he can't see it, Glenn. You gotta, Gonna have big money to know what I just wrote. Okay. He, he solves the name. No one knew the name, the mystery of Proverbs 32 through 4. They didn't know the name of the second person. They knew the name of the first person. They knew the name of the Spirit of God. But what is the name of the angel of God? The name of the angel of God is revealed by Christ to be what? Salvation. That's his name. And if that's your name, then that means that's what you're going to do. So that is the solution. He gives that to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus knows that. He knows that John 3, 13 through 17, what Christ is doing. He knows that's a great mystery because he is the teacher of the nation of Israel. So, so far, obviously, I have signs everywhere. It's in common to all three of these sections in John. And so... Um, Obviously, we have to ask, why didn't Christ believe himself to them? What's that mean? Is it because, it is because he's omniscient God and he knows everything. Therefore, he doesn't tell them something. Even though they believe in him, they believe in his name because they saw the signs, he doesn't tell them something. What is it that he's not telling them? He's withholding something. He's not telling them something, not revealing. What is it that he's not with, not, what is it that he's withholding? Is he withholding their salvation? What's his name again? His name is Saving Person Guy. His name is Salvation. It's what he desires. Is he going to not save somebody that wants to be saved? That's nuts. Can't be defended. See, he's not withholding their salvation. He is salvation. He saves. It's what he does. So obviously he didn't reveal something to, to them. 
And then most obvious of the most obviously, who comes next? Nicodemus comes next. So what's the question that you ask? Did he reveal it to Nicodemus? What he didn't reveal to the ones who saw the signs and believed in the first Passover, did he reveal it to Nicodemus? Because he had something that he didn't give the first group. Did he give it to Nicodemus to keep repeating myself? And the answer is what? Yep. Yes, he did. He revealed it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. That means he's the guy teaching. He's number one. Very smart man, Nicodemus. He goes on to figure out the burial spices. He's got this worked out really fast. One of the greatest Bible scholars that has ever lived, Nicodemus. And Christ reveals to him what he did not reveal to the people that believed in him when they saw the signs which he did. Nicodemus comes to him and says, I know you're God because only God can do what you do. Okay? Hopefully now that gets... Uh, you have to ask, why does he reveal... First got to figure out what it was he revealed to Nicodemus. And then you have to ask, why did he not reveal it to the first group? And what's the difference between the two? And he answers it. He really does. He got, as I said, he gives Nicodemus the mystery of Agar, the answer to that. So if he's going to give him that, he's going to give him the answer to the other as well. And he did. And then uh, for Glenn's little group, hi Glenn and your little group, uh, now you're trying to connect this um, to Revelation. You're trying to connect Proverbs 34, which is the name of the second person, to the mystery of the name of the who. You're trying to, you're wanting to know if the 666 and Proverbs 34 are both being discussed in John 2. And uh, in other words, they're saying the mystery of the name of the second person of the triune Godhead and the mystery of the name of the second person of Satan's triad is that in John 2.25. So if that's going to be true... All I have to do, Glenn, is find that complement in the Old Testament, and then I'll see if I'm right. So have fun with that, and write me if you can't get out of the dandelions. That's what we call the weeds up here. So I hope that helped you. And in the meantime, everybody that came here now goes, wow, I'm glad we're done with that. But it's a very important thing in the Bible to know because you're beat over the head with it. In every church you go in, you go and ask the pastor of the church that you're visiting to explain John 2.24 and 2.25 to you. And if he says, well, we've got two groups of people, uh, people that uh, Christ rejects because they didn't alphabetize their salvation document correctly, didn't get it notarized, it's out of date, it expired, and the notary uh, didn't have a proper stamp. If he gives you something like that, then run from him. Okay, now we're going to start the lecture.
I'm kidding, Buck. Buck just started to run for the buffet. Where we last left off, and this is really fast, because I don't want to do this. I announced during the pregame that I didn't want to do this. I knew today was air show day, and I'm going to solve the mystery of the accursed things in Joshua 6 and 7. It's an incredible thing to discuss, and that's where we are. I'll introduce it today so that I don't have to take it completely too far so I can save some of it for the others who will complain if I jump too fast. They want permission to skip class because they know that I'll, I'll back up for them. Well, where we last left off, if you were here, we had the two messengers that Yeshua sent into Jericho. And I say that exactly like that. Yeshua, Joshua, same thing. Christ sends two messengers into Jericho, if you want to think of it that way. Joshua sends two messengers into Jericho. So Joshua sending two messengers into Jericho has, as it's portraying the two witnesses that Christ sends into the world during the tribulation. So you got that. And now what we're trying to do is figure out the message of the two messengers. And we decided last week that they are the wickedness they're going into Jericho to do two things. They're going to witness the evil that is in Jericho because they have to have two witnesses before I can put Jericho to death. That's Bible. That's what the Bible is telling us. And so these two witnesses are going into Jericho and they are going to witness the evil there as well as the rest of the land of Canaan. And they did. But they also have a message to deliver. And that message, again, all i got to go is to Revelation chapter 11 and read the two witnesses. And I know the message is going to be the same. And that message in both places is that the wickedness of Jericho was to be ended. Or the wickedness of the world is coming to an end. And, it, and uh, it's, a, it's no, really not that much different than what Jonah did in, uh, in uh, Nineveh. Repent or die. Time has come. You got 30 minutes. Boom. Repent or die. And it should be said here that God has two methods of ending wickedness. Uh, one is utter destruction. The other is conversion. You pick. Now the hyper-Calvinists will not like me saying that. Repentance, belief, conversion, or utter destruction. He's going to end the sin. He has to, or he's not good. We've had that discussion. He's not going to let sin go on and on and on and on. He's going to stop it. It would be, it would be evil of him to allow evil to continue. He's long-suffering. He waits. He asks you to repent. He exhorts you. He reaches out to you. You repent and believe, convert, or be destroyed. Now, I know there are others that say their religion does the same thing. It isn't that way. There is no offer of salvation. Only Rahab and her household choose conversion. The rest of Jericho chooses to continue their wickedness. And remember, God gave Jericho hundreds of years to stop. They don't stop. 
Jericho was unwilling. They decided that they're going to rely on their walls, their bunker, if you will, to withstand God's judgment. They got, they're going to go with rebar and concrete. That's their plan. They don't even have that. But they've got big walls and they're going to say, okay, all you've got on your side is God. We have walls and knee braces. It's going to work out great. And that's, you see, is the ultimate question of Jericho, which is the portrait of the tribulation, to repeat. Rahab heard, she didn't see the signs, she just heard the signs. She heard of the signs, the Red Sea sign, the, other, the utter destruction of the kings of the Amorites, uh, Og, Sihon, Joshua 2, 8 through 10. All she did was hear it, and she chose to beg for salvation. Didn't see it, just heard it. She wanted deliverance. And all of Jericho had heard the same thing she heard, and they said, we want to stay in our sin. We prefer that. And thus the key question of the whole story of Jericho. What causes mankind, when he knows that his creator God has come, And the Creator God has come because time has run out on your wickedness. What causes men to think they can hide? To desperately cling to their sin when it will cost them everything. It's the two thief question, isn't it? Same question. Why not surrender? Why not live? Why not say, hey, remember me? Hey, I give up. Why not beg for your life? Jericho doesn't do that. They shut the door and they hide behind their walls and they think they're going to get through it. And and the person that is coming for them is Creator God. Why not? Why did the vast majority choose to die in sin and reject the mercy of God? And God calls this, by the way, a debased mind. Romans one twenty eight. And he calls it a hopeless condition. He says these are people who are haters of God. They are violent. They're boasters. They're inventors of evil things. They're unloving. They're unmerciful. They're evil-minded. They're full of murder. They're filled with wickedness. All of that is Romans 1, 28 through 32. And that is what Jericho is. That's what all of Canaan is, for that matter. And the time has come for Jericho. And by the way, why does he go in order? He takes out the Amorites, and then Jericho hears. Does it help Jericho? No. Listen, if I'm, if, if I'm living in my street and my neighbor, they come from my neighbor and they take him out, I'm assuming the next door they knock on is me. I would hope that I got enough common sense to go, they've come down the street one at a time. I'm going to surrender. Or at least I'm going to run. I'm not going to hide in my house. They've blown up ten houses in a row. You've got to be kidding me. I can't figure out this logic. But God calls it a debased mind. But clearly he is going in order and injecting time because he's giving what? Each one a what? An opportunity to repent. So anyway, ask the questions. If Jericho is a boasting place, what are they boasting about? And they're going around going, I'm smarter than you. No, they're boasting as a group. What have they solved? And when they're boasting, by the way, they're haters of God. They're going nanny, nanny, foo-foo to God. 
They think they have done something that God hasn't figured them to do. They've, they've circumvented one of God's curses. Which one? Food supply? Idleness? Death? Then they had invented evil things. What did they invent? And then they're unmerciful to someone. Who are they unmerciful to? And then they're murdering somebody. Who are they murdering? Why are they murdering them? Is it all connected? Is the boasting, the invention, the invention, the, the unmerciful and the murdering, are they all the same? And I submit that they're all the same. They're boasting about what they have invented. What they have invented is unmerciful and it causes the murdering of someone. It's all the same. In other words, what are the sins of Jericho that results in their utter destruction? Man and woman, young and old, Joshua 6.21. Ox and sheep, donkey, with the edge of the word of God or the edge of the sword. Revelation 19.21. Hebrews 4.12-13. God has come. He's going to separate the souls from the body and he's going to end their wickedness. And they decide, the one. here comes the one that has the ability to instantly remove their soul from their body, and their plan is to hide behind a wall. He can go through the wall. You've got to know that. It's insanity. Again, think about what they invented. Think about what they're boasting about. Think about how they think their wall is going to save them. Put it all together. It's all the same boast. It's all the same invention. It's all the same mindset. God describes the soldiers of Jericho as mighty men of measure. It says valor, but it means measure. What it means, men of great measure, which means they're two times the size of a normal man. So if a normal man is five foot, they're ten foot. Normal man six foot, they're twelve foot. They are powerful, huge human beings. Think how many home runs they would hit. Think about what a twelve foot guy could do on a baseball field. Um, by the way, if you saw a twelve foot guy hitting three hundred home runs a season, what would you think? Performance-enhancing chemicals, wouldn't you? I think that'd be wise to consider performance-enhancing chemistry or biology. Mighty men of measure. Christ, God himself says this to Joshua. Why would Jesus Christ describe them this way? Well, obviously, it's the perfect description. There are huge, mighty men with great physical capability, probably great mental capability, inside Jericho. And Israel, by the way, already knew that. Don't have time to read it. Next week I will. Certainly, Joshua and Caleb knew it, because in Numbers 13, 28 through 33, the 12 spies come back and they go... We can't do this. Those guys are huge. We look like grasshoppers next to them. They're going to kill us. And Jacob and uh, Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can take them, especially Caleb. Attack. Kill the 12-foot men. No problem. He was right, by the way. 
But Israel was petrified of these huge men. And Christ says, those huge men are in that city. And by the way, in Numbers 13, 28 through 33, he doesn't call them huge men of measure. What does it call them? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? He calls them Nephilim. Inside the walls of Jericho, all throughout the land of Canaan, are Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? They are huge, genetically altered humans. And they're inside this fortified large city that's described in Numbers 13. And when we study Numbers 13 and Numbers 14, we discover just how afraid of the Nephilim the people of Israel were. And again, not Caleb, not Joshua. So Joshua is being told by God, listen, the Nephilim are inside that city. Remember them? There were only two people alive that wanted to fight. Joshua and Caleb. All the rest die in the wilderness. They, were so, they would rather die in the wilderness than fight the Nephilim. And Christ is reminding Joshua of that day. He tells Joshua, I have given the Nephilim and just Jericho into your hand. It will be easy to take them out. It's going to be easy. Just got to kind of walk around, blow some trumpets, walls fall in. Piece of cake. The two messengers that were sent, they already reported to Joshua that all of Canaan is afraid of Israel, including the Nephilim. And that, by the way, that's shocking. As an aside, the fear of giants, uh, fear of the Nephilim is a reoccurring theme in Scripture, especially with the nation of Israel. You see it show up at David and Goliath. You see it here with Caleb and Joshua. Numbers 13, 14, right here at Joshua 6 and 7. So ask the question, this fear of the Nephilim, what is so wicked about Nephilimic characteristics? Well, it's always been the same pattern, what I call the Sodom pattern. Which in modern times, if you have any age to you, you know about Joseph Mengele. Joseph Mengele had the Sodom pattern. He was the, uh, um, Joseph Mengele destroyed the weak in order to extend the lifespans of the strong. That was his primary scientific endeavor, for lack of a better way to describe it. Mengele, as you should know, was a scientist for the Nazis who experimented on Jewish children primarily, mostly twins. And his goal was to cure or retard the aging process. He was a brutal, evil man. The only one that equates to Joseph Mengele in the last hundred years are probably Margaret Sanger. I, 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 they, are, they stand together alone, two people of great wickedness. The pattern is always the same. Evil people so often seek to defeat their own mortality. What were they boasting about in Jericho? What does evil boast about? They've defeated their own mortality. And they utilize any means possible. And so therefore, because it happens over and over and over again in the Bible, uh, we have to uh, consider that it might be happening here at Jericho because God says, kill the men, the women, the children, the young and the old, the donkeys, the ox, the goats, kill it all. 
Something so evil is happening inside here. We gotta kill it all. No choice. Remember, this is a tribulation or portrait. Something so evil will happen in the tribulation that God has to stop it. And when God does destroy it, does utterly destroy something, it is because there is no other option. Obviously, Rahab being in the Messianic line is an important clue to her behavior and her decisions. More on that in the weeks to come. But in addition, we have the mystery of the accursed or the devoted thing. I'm going to read that as we close. This is what I consider one of the most fantastic mysteries in all the Bible. It's something that I kind of spent a lot more time on than people thought I should. And the more I did it, the more I just was stunned at how special it is. So I'm going to read it to you a little bit here. Inside of Jericho, not only are they doing something wicked in there, but they have the accursed thing in there. The devoted thing. And you can't take it. Or if you do, a great trouble will come. He who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. That's what God says. You take the accursed thing, I gotta, you're going to be burned with fire. By the way, the guy that took the accursed thing was not burned with fire. That's one of the fun mysteries of it. He was stoned. Why? It's a great story about Achan. So, we're going to read just a little bit of it, and then that's where we'll stop. I'll read Joshua 6, 18 through 19. And you, by all means, he's telling the Jews, I'm going to knock the walls down. I don't want you to touch the accursed thing. Abstain from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated or dedicated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Joshua 7, 1. <coughs> but the children of Israel committed a trespass. He tells them, don't do it. What happened? They do it. The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmon, the son of Jabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. What is it about the accursed thing? What is the accursed thing? Don't touch the accursed thing, whatever it is. And I'm saying accursed thing, I know the word is devoted. Don't write me. Joshua, I like calling it the accursed thing because it's much more fun for me. Joshua 7.10 So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Which covenant is he talking about? It isn't. There's more to this. How is it that by taking the accursed thing, you transgress the covenant? Which covenant? For they have taken some of the accursed things, and have stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. 7.13, get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. 7.15, then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant 
of the Lord because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. There is an accursed thing in the city of Jericho. And he's got to destroy. He doesn't destroy the accursed thing, by the way, but you don't take it. Who does it belong to? It's God's. What is it? Why is it this? What's it doing in Jericho? How to get into Jericho? Does Jericho know they have it? Yeah, they did. How did they get it? Next week, we'll do all of that. Let's shut her down here. Will the musician please come forward? There she is.